listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the book of Acts, how Christians live. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. If you have a Bible, please open with me to Acts chapter 20 in our Father's Word as we are again reminded that the Bible is such a book that man would not write if he could, could not write if he would. The Bible is a unique book, unique among all other books ever written, 66 books, multiple authors with one unifying theme. There is a God, he is alive, you're dead, and he wants to raise you from the dead. And God has a way of doing that through his word. Now today we're going to be reminded yet again of what spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, spirit-led living looks like. Not just as it looked in history in the first century through the Apostle Paul and the early church, but today in the 21st century in your life and in mine, in your family and in mine, in this church and any church that's willing to be spirit-led, spirit-filled, spirit-empowered. I just need to know before I say another word, I need to know if you are a receptive audience, if you are ready to receive God's word and to put it into action. It doesn't matter if you just want to hear it. You need to put it into action. Bring it on. Because God needs fertile ground. He always wants the ground to be prepared for the planting of his word. And we're going to be looking at the whole 20th chapter of the book of Acts today, not as a mental academic exercise. We don't need more Bible crammed into our heads. We need the spirit of God flowing out of our lives as a result of the Bible that's in our hearts and in our heads. It's not the Bible that we know that will change the world. It's the Bible that we apply. It's the Bible that we apply. That's what's going to change your life. That's what's going to change your family. That's what's going to change this nation. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. After the uproar ceased. What uproar? This is in Ephesus, the riot that we talked about last time together. After all of that nonsense was over. Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia, in keeping with Acts chapter 16, where Paul has this vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. Paul is being faithful to the calling of Almighty God, and that's what we're seeing here in the 20th chapter. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him, if you were looking at Acts chapter 9, verse 16, when God spoke about the calling of the apostle Paul, who was at that time Saul, a Pharisee, he said, I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for my namesake. So this is, again, a nod to that prophetic word that God means what he says, says what he means, delivers what he promises. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secondus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. That's the historicity that's involved here. It's not allegory. It's not some kind of a made-up story. These are actual people who really lived, and it's important for us to recognize the detail that's provided here because Luke is helping us understand this is a travel diary, a documentary of what actually went down, all right? Verse 5, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, this would be Sunday, Resurrection Day. The first day of the week, when we had gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, before we get to the rest of the story here, it's important for us to understand why we gather on Sundays as believers. Here, even in the first century, it's probably taking place about 55, 56, 57 AD. Very early on, the believers were gathered together on the first day of the week to have a meal together, to fellowship together. 
Why would they do that? Why would they gather together on the first day of the week? Why would that be of any interest to anybody who's a follower of Jesus Christ? Take a wild guess why they would be interested in getting together on the first day of the week. I mean, dig deep, think long and hard, and imagine why Paul is a Pharisee coming from the Jews. Why would he be encouraging and participating in a gathering of the disciples, of the believers, on the first day of the week, which we know as Sunday? Why would they do that? Because that is the day when the greatest event in all of history took place, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so from the earliest times, followers of that Jesus would get together, just like we're getting together now, this is the history of it, and fellowship together, be taught from God's word together, and celebrate that great event. Without the resurrection, we would have no hope. Without the resurrection, we have no statement by God the Father of the effectiveness and the, the, satisfactory, the satisfactory offering of the life of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and mine. The resurrection is the verdict of Almighty God that what Jesus did on the cross paid in full for every single one of your sins. The resurrection is God's seal of approval. I like my son. In fact, I love my son. I like what he did on the cross. In fact, I love what he did on the cross, painful as it was, because it secured your salvation and the salvation of anyone and everyone who simply gives their life to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. If you haven't done that yet, you can do that right now. Give your life to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and then Sunday will be an important day for you because you'll join with history. And you'll understand that it's a set-apart day on purpose because on that day, on the first day of the week, God took Jesus as dead as dead could be and raised him from the dead. His seal of approval on the sinless, sacrificial life of Jesus, the effectiveness of the cross and the importance, the reality that you needed, I needed, we all needed, and we need somebody to pay the price that we couldn't pay. We needed somebody to come in and to save us, to rescue us, to deliver us from ourselves and from the devil and from the world and from the ravages of sin. And that's why the resurrection is so vitally important. Just be careful when you're reading the Bible and you read something like this about Sunday, the first day of the week, you don't just zip by and forget again the significance of why they were gathering on the first day of the week. Some people want to get all hung up. <gasps> the Christians changed the Sabbath and they had no right to do that. There's a particular denomination today that focuses on not the first day of the week, but the seventh day of the week. And I know that they mean well, and I know that they have sincere intentions, but they miss the whole joy and the whole purpose. And I would go so far as to say the historicity of why believers would meet on the first day of the week. It's not a blasphemous thing. It's not a replacement of the Sabbath. There's nothing here that says, and Paul and the disciples now began to replace the Sabbath by meeting on the first day of the week. No. It's that they were celebrating the greatest event in all of history, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and what that means for mere mortals just like you and for me. Aren't we entitled to get excited about that? Aren't we entitled to be happy and grateful and thankful about that? Aren't we entitled to commemorate that? Of course we are. Of course we are. And so the next time somebody comes up to you and says, did you change the Sabbath? You know, right here it says, honor the Sabbath and keep it. It's an everlasting covenant. You just look at them lovingly and say, who's saying anything about the Sabbath? I'm talking about the Savior and the greatest event in all of history. The verdict of Almighty God. That was the verdict day. That's when the verdict was handed down. My son was innocent. You were guilty. And the beautiful, miraculous, merciful mystery of God is that he would take guilty people like you and like me and declare us 
not guilty because his guiltless son died in our place. If we can't get excited about that, the way the Apostle Paul and the disciples got excited about that, if we can't take one day out of the week to pause and to commemorate the historical significance of God raising Jesus from the dead and what that means for you and for me and anybody who places their faith in him, if we can't do that, God help us, literally. But the great news is that God did help us through the person and the works of Jesus. And God is helping us. Aren't you thankful that God loves you so much that he would take all of your guilt and as far as the east is from the west, remove your sin from you so that you can have fellowship with God right now and in the life to come, never ever be separated from him again. That's the beauty of the gospel. There you go. Verse seven. First day of the week, When they were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps or many torches. If you think about them being fueled by oil, probably extra virgin olive oil, which I love because I come from Italian ancestry, and there's nothing like a bowl of extra virgin olive oil with some seasoning in it, a little bit of sea salt, a little bit of homemade Italian bread, sliced after it's come out of the oven nice and warm and you dip that bread into the olive oil but I digress it was also used for torches and if you had many torches many lamps in a room there would be smoke coming from those torches from those lamps and you might be inclined to do what Eutychus did get away from some of that smoke and some of the pollutants and go get some fresh air by going over to a window, which, by the way, did not have glass in it. You go over to a window to get some fresh air, and this is what was happening there. A lot of smoke, a lot of the pollutant like that could, in fact, cause somebody to get a bit tired. Now, if you add to that somebody who's a little bit long-winded, unlike your pastor is, you add to that somebody who's a little bit long-winded, like the Apostle Paul, who was speaking until midnight, and that's... That's the recipe for somebody falling asleep and falling out of the window. Three stories down, and this is what takes place. Many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. Notice the we were gathered. Eyewitness account, Luke, the physician, is the author of the book of Acts. And a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. Some have speculated, well, he wasn't really dead. Others have said, well, he was dead and this was a miracle. Listen, if the guy survived a drop from a third story window, I can be pretty excited about that. The point is, that God was at work here in the life of Eutychus, in the life of the church, and demonstrating his protective hand over his people. Paul went down, bent over him, taking him in his arms, said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. This is my kind of guy. This is my kind of guy. This guy likes to talk. He's got the gift of gab, but there's something on the horizon here that's going to happen. He's about to leave. So these are his parting words that he's giving before his parting words. This is his last hurrah with these people that he's not going to see ever again. And so he's pouring himself out, teaching and preaching, and exhorting, and encouraging, and saying, remember this, and don't forget that. Remember how the scripture says this, and the scripture says that, and don't forget this. Now, now keep in mind, don't forget, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And so this goes on until the morning, this teaching and this exhortation, on and on and on, until daybreak, and then he departed. Verse 12, and they took the youth away alive, Eutychus, And we're not a little comforted, meaning, I don't know why the ESV says it that way. They were greatly comforted. They were happy. Why can't they just say it that way? We don't talk that way, do we? And they were not a little comforted. What? If your wife said that to you, you know what, hon? The way you just said that to me, I was not a little comforted by that. (laughs) Lord bless 
the Bible translators. How about that? But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. Now, look at, again, the historicity here, the accuracy of all these geographic locations that Luke is recording for us. Verse 16, for Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. In fulfillment of Acts chapter 19, verse 20, where Paul was setting his face to Jerusalem. He wanted to go to Jerusalem first, give them money from an offering or offerings that were taking place in all of the churches in the area that he had been collecting, drop off that offering to Jerusalem, and then head to Rome, where he was going to selflessly, sacrificially proclaim that same Jesus he had been preaching in this whole area of Greece in that particular day and age, in that whole area of Asia Minor, now he's going to go to Rome and proclaim that same Jesus and that same gospel to the epicenter of the Gentile, non-Jewish world. So when we look at the first chapter of Romans, where the apostle Paul, he would have written that book of Romans, most likely when he was in Corinth, on one of these trips to the Corinthian churches, when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and also to the non-Jew or the Gentile or the Greek. And so what we're seeing here is the fulfillment of what was said by Jesus in the very beginning of the book of Acts. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he's using one little guy. The name Paul means little one. He's using one little guy to accomplish a huge monumental task. And Paul is on his way now to Rome that's his ultimate objective after Jerusalem, to proclaim Jesus and to preach the gospel. Now, here's where it gets really exciting. If you've thought that it was exciting already to look at Acts chapter 20, here's where it gets particularly exciting. Verse 19. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. If you're an elder or an overseer, or a shepherd, or a pastor, pay particular attention. If you're not an elder, or an overseer, or a pastor, that's not an opportunity for you to check out. You need to pay attention as well, because this is going to apply to you in a different way, in a different way, but nonetheless, it's going to apply to you as well. And when they came to him, he said to them, see, he's still exhorting, he's still encouraging, he's still challenging. Now we get a glimpse of what were some of the final words that Paul said to the leaders of the church in Ephesus before he departed from them. And this is one of the few instances, if not the only instance, the only instance in the book of Acts where we have a message from the Apostle Paul, a sermon from the Apostle Paul to a Christian audience primarily, to a primarily Christian audience. All of the other messages up to this point have been evangelistic in nature where the preaching of the gospel has been the focus and the, the emphasis. So here he's teaching and he's talking to the elders, the overseers, the bishops, not used in the same way that we use bishops today. It's evolved through the years, but the overseers, the elders, the bishops, the shepherds of the church, all of those words are used interchangeably in the Bible. Each one defines and explains the role of a church leader with greater clarity. When they came to him, verse 18, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Now, it's interesting that Paul refers to his own humility. We would think, well, that doesn't seem very humble. How can somebody refer to their own humility? You know, um, I'm just so humble that sometimes I can't take how humble God has made me. <laughs> that doesn't sound right, does it? There's something intrinsically wrong about that. However, that's not the way that Paul is doing it. That's not how Paul is doing it. Look what he says. He says, serving the Lord with all humility. He's saying it as an example for them. He's showing them what a mature disciple looks like, what a mature disciple lives like. And I've done it with tears. 
I've done it at my own expense. I haven't been a burden to you. I haven't been a parasite to you. I've been a helper to you. And here we understand, if we understand the book of Acts, even up to this point, we see that there's a direct correlation between humility and courage. There's a direct correlation between humility and courage. We have it backwards today, and it's one of the things that has really hindered and hampered the church. It's one of the things that really has hindered the effectiveness of church leaders. We do not understand what humility is. We don't understand how important humility is. We don't understand how humility and courage are inseparable when it comes to being filled with, led by the Holy Spirit. Those two are interchangeable. You will never be as courageous as you will be and as humble as you will be than when you're filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be led by the Holy Spirit is to be a person who is courageous for the agenda of Almighty God. To be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be led by the Holy Spirit is to be filled with the same humility that was the characteristic of Jesus' life and the same humility that was characteristic of the Apostle Paul's life. So one of the things that you might need to think about a lot more this year, all throughout this year, as you're thinking about what do you want to accomplish this year, here's one thing that you want to accomplish. You want to accomplish becoming a more courageous person for Jesus, a more humble person for Jesus, and that always comes courtesy of the filling with the leading of the Holy Spirit. We're the ones, naturally speaking, human beings, mere mortals, we're the ones who separate humility from courage, but God never does. God never does. God never separates humility from courage. To be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be led by the Holy Spirit is to be filled with the Spirit of Jesus, totally humble. It is to be filled with the Spirit of courage, totally courageous, unapologetic, unafraid of speaking the truth in love. So many in the body of Christ today are afraid of speaking the truth in love. It's not just a fear factor, it's also a, a knowledge factor. We don't even know how to do it. We don't know where to begin. How do I speak the truth in love? How do I speak to a culture that is running away from God, that's rejected the idea of absolute values, Judeo-Christian values, biblical teaching? Where do I even start? Here's where you start. Here's where it all begins right here on your knees before Almighty God, keeping in mind the truth of who is speaking these words as we're reading the book of Acts. It's Paul the Apostle. It's Paul the recovering Pharisee. A Pharisee would have been well-versed in the Old Testament. What is the Old Testament? Their version of the Bible would have had in-depth knowledge of the Bible. He would have been walking with God now in prayer ever since he got knocked on his bum on the road to Damascus. His eyes are opened. He now understands Jesus as being the Savior written about in all of the Old Testament. He's a man of prayer and he's a man of the Word. And if you're a person of prayer and a person of the Word, you too will be filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you speak the truth? In love. It's not one or the other, it's both. The most loving thing you can do to somebody is tell them the truth. The most hateful thing you can do to somebody is withhold the truth from them when you know what the truth is. So in this day and age where tolerance is all the rage, well, we got to let people do whatever they want to do. If it feels good, do it. No, that's not Jesus' approach. It's not the approach of the Apostle Paul. And you're going to see how serious Paul is about the truth in just a moment as we continue in chapter 20. But you have to understand that the place to start with what our nation needs, which is a serious dose, a perpetual dose of people speaking the truth in love, is to be a person of the Word of God, immersed in the Word of God, a person of prayer. And when you start there, when you're on your knees, when you're calling out to God, when you're preading the Word of God, praying and reading the Word of God, the Word that Pastor Joe created, P-R-E-A-D. It's not P-R-E-E, -E, by the way. P-R-E-A-D-I-N-G. When you're preading the Word of God, praying through the Word, applying the Word of God, studying the Word of God to your life, 
It's the opportunity for the Spirit of God to fill you, to flood into every crevice of your life as you surrender. All those areas that were otherwise not submitted to God, remember to read the word correctly is to always have an encounter with God, meaning God will speak to you about an area or areas of your life that need to be changed. Well, as you say yes to God and surrender to him in those areas, As he opens up your eyes, you see the truth and you say, I'm not going to hold on to resistance anymore. Resistance to God is futile, right? You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You get wisdom, you get insight, and you have humble courage. Humble courage is the byproduct of reading the word of God, praying through the word of God, submitting yourself to the word of God, walking with Jesus. That's how we speak the truth in love. And that's what Paul's ministry was characterized by. That's what your ministry Whether you're good for nothing, meaning you don't have a full-time ministry job, or whether you're paid in ministry as a vocational thing, you'll be used by Almighty God. You'll have courageous humility to speak the truth in love. It's not one or the other. It's both, because those are always the byproducts of a spirit-filled, spirit-led life. And Paul is demonstrating that, all right? Do not make the mistake of separating humility from courage. Do not misunderstand what humility is. It is the most attractive trait that you could possibly possess as a follower of Jesus Christ. The absence of humility will invoke the active opposition of Almighty God. The absence of humility will invoke the active opposition of Almighty God. If you don't believe me, look at James chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you want the power of God flowing through your life, coursing through your life, then humility needs to be a primary objective of the character development in your own journey with Jesus. And so Paul is giving his final words here. Verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. See, repentance toward God for Jews and Greeks, for every human being, repentance toward God, turning from yourself, turning from the things of the world, turning from the devil, and turning toward God. That's what repentance is. You need to be a 180 person. You need to be a 180 person, a 180 person, a 180 person. You're going in this direction. Repentance is now you're going in the opposite direction, which is the best direction where God is leading and directing you. All right? But look what he says here. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. So much for politically correct sermons. So much for politically correct teaching. So much for politically correct churches. We'll talk about the reason why churches and ministries and individuals can gravitate toward political correctness as the word of God teaches us here as we continue. But let's look at verse 22. Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So contrary to the understanding today of if I give my life to Christ, everything will nicely resolve. You watch some of these Christian movies that are put out, at least in recent years, and everything perfectly, beautifully resolves, and it's as if The American gospel is follow Jesus so that all of your dreams can come true. But the biblical understanding of being filled with and led by the Holy Spirit is that it could very well result in afflictions and hardship and opposition and difficulty. Paul's life is an example. If you're a person of courageous humility filled with the Holy Spirit, you've got to have opposition in your life because the devil doesn't like you, the world won't like you, and its world system won't like you, you will face affliction and opposition. So you need to let the word of God change your thinking. We need to let the word of God change our thinking to understand here is an example of what spirit-filled, spirit-led living looks like. Constrained by the Holy Spirit, I'm going into the epicenter of affliction and harm and difficulty. Sometimes that's the best thing that can be happening in your life. 
Oftentimes what we do is we ask God, take away the difficulty, take away the hardship, make my life easier. You know, God might not want to make your life easier. God might allow your life to get harder so that you can be a better witness for Jesus Christ as you are filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't need a nation of people who are comfortable. We don't need churches where people are there who are simply comfortable and God is fulfilling all of their dreams. We need churches and Christians who are fulfilling the vision of Almighty God, advancing the kingdom agenda of God. And that will only happen in proportion to you and to me and God's people getting sold out to the filling with and the leading by the Holy Spirit. You make up your mind to be a spirit-led, spirit-filled believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, and hardship and difficulty will be things on your horizon, but don't worry about it. You'll have peace, supernatural peace, courtesy of that same Holy Spirit in the midst of all of the affliction and hardship. Listen, Neil Peart, the drummer for the famous rock band Rush, wrote a song called Bravado. And in that song, he says this. I don't want to get it wrong. He said this, we will pay the price, but we will not count the cost. We will pay the price, but we will not count the cost. First of all, you're saying to yourself, how dare you bring up a secular rock band while I'm in church? Quoting Neil Peart, a Canadian at that? <laughs> so my wife is Canadian. Kudos to you, Janet. My kids are also Canadian. Kudos to them as well. How'd that happen? Do your research. You'll find out about that whole thing, okay? <laughs> we will pay the price, but we will not count the cost. How dare we as followers of Jesus not think as deeply as secular rock musicians? We will pay the price, but we will not count the cost. What does that mean? We don't stop and think about how the decisions we're making today for or against Jesus will cost us for better or for worse in the eternal scheme of things. The tyranny of the urgent are busy, hectic, distracted lives are causing many of us to make decisions that have an eternally high cost. We're paying the price without counting the cost. And here the Apostle Paul was paying the price there and then because he had counted the cost. And here's what you need to understand and I need to understand as we look at what his cost was. Verse 24, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. By the way, the kingdom. What was Paul proclaiming? The kingdom. The kingdom was then and there. It's in the future and it's in the world to come, the new heaven and the new earth. Don't let anybody tell you that we shouldn't be proclaiming or talking about the kingdom because you can't reconcile verse 25 with that. Paul tells us he was talking about the kingdom, the kingdom of God, people getting saved, drawn out of the kingdom of the enemy. But here, did you catch verse 24? I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. All sin falls into one or both of these sins, the sin of self-protection and the sin of self-glorification. Next time you sin or as you reflect on the times you have sinned, when you catch yourself, ask yourself, which kind of sin predominantly was that, a sin of self-protection or a sin of self-glorification? Sometimes both. What does it mean to put to death whatever belongs to the sinful nature? It means to stop trying to glorify yourself. It means to stop trying to protect yourself, to insulate yourself from what you will experience when you are faithful and loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I think that many of us within the church have allowed ourselves to be conditioned through half-baked teaching and preaching. Where the gospel has become synonymous, following Jesus has become synonymous with everything's going to resolve. God's going to protect you. Now, don't pray that God protects you as much as you pray that God directs you. If you have God's direction, you will have God's protection. Be very careful. Listen, if your prayer life is consumed with or characterized by asking God mostly to protect you rather than to direct you, there's something out of whack. Paul didn't care about himself. He only cared about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's an example of what a spirit-filled, spirit-led Christian will do. The attitude of a spirit-filled, spirit-led Christian, how they think, how they live, how they minister, and how they have an impact as a result. The objective of your family is not that your family is protected, but that your family is directed by the Holy Spirit to be a factor of influence as salt and light, an outpost in the kingdom of God, wherever your family might be, where people could look at you and say, there is a God, there is hope. And I'm convinced about it because how I see your family living. Very important to understand. The sins of self-protection and self-glorification will wreck your life. They will wreck your witness and your ministry for Jesus. The sin of self-protection, the sin of self-glorification. Think about all the things that Jesus said, all the examples that Jesus said. Nobody who puts his hand to the plow and looks over his shoulder is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Unless you hate your father and your mother and your sisters and brothers, indeed your own life, you're not worthy for service in my kingdom. Let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus, filled with courage, filled with humility, filled with an uncompromising devotion to his father. The apostle Paul now, a mere mortal, filled with immovable, uncompromising devotion to that same God. Your life filled with uncompromising devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, courtesy of the filling with the Holy Spirit. This is what it looks like, friends. This is what it looks like. This is why we say the Bible is not a book primarily of exceptions, but a book of examples. Why in the world are we reading the book of Acts in the first place? Because we want to understand how Christians live, not how Christians lived. This is not a memorial service that we're engaging in to eulogize the first century and how God used to move powerfully. And look, those were the glory days. The glory days are right here and right now where God is writing his kingdom agenda story through your life and through mine, through the courtesy of the power, the indwelling, the infilling, the leading of and with and by the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful story. And God has recruited you to be one of the players in that amazing documentary, that drama that's taking place right here and right now. Verse 26, therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Again, the sin of self-protection and self-glorification. One of the reasons why churches are not addressing the issues of the day. But George Barna, famous statistician and author, has made it clear that the number one thing that Christians want their pastors and their elders to address from the platform or the pulpit are the current events of the day. They're asking for it. They're begging for it. But you know, the pastors and the elders, they're scared to death about losing their popularity, about how things might affect the offering plate. And so what's happened is we're preaching the gospel in a vacuum. We're walking around in circles. We're preaching select portions of the Bible, but staying away from other portions of the Bible. So that while things are happening over here in in flagrant disobedience to the clear black and white teaching of Scripture, we're over there talking about subjects that have no 
current relevance to what's happening right here in front of all of us. There are elephants in the nation. Elephants in the nation. You've heard about an elephant in the room. There are elephants in the nation. How do you know what they are? Pay attention. Read the news in one hand and your Bible in the other. Watch the news. Listen in the radio. Don't just turn it off. Be an engaged, involved Christian citizen led by and filled with the Holy Spirit. And you will see all around us that Rome is burning. The modern equivalent of Rome, the United States of America, is burning. And the great need of the day is for pastors and elders to be filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit of God to be men of prayer, people of prayer who are in the word to be able to discern the times and bring the word of God to bear on what's actually happening in the ins and outs of the nation Monday through Sunday. But the number one reason why that is not happening is because we are afraid we're afraid that people might speak ill of us, that they speak ill of Jesus. We're afraid that people might persecute us, that they persecute Paul. We're afraid that people might make our lives uncomfortable. Were the lives of the believers uncomfortable? Of course they were. What brand of Christianity have we embraced in the United States? It's a counterfeit one in many instances. Not in all instances. But in many instances, today can be the day where you put a nail on that thing and you say, Jesus, please forgive me for pursuing protection instead of your direction. Please forgive me for pursuing protection instead of your direction. Listen, what you need in your life is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to make you a courageous, humble person to stand up and speak out in the face of all the ills and the dangers and the difficult things that are happening today. There's no such thing biblically as a politically correct Christian. There is no such thing as a politically correct Christian. That's biblical. The truth is, there are a lot of politically correct Christians out there. There's just no biblical substantiation for that approach. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He's speaking to the elders. He's speaking to the overseers. He's speaking to the shepherds. He's speaking to the leaders of the church. Listen, the leaders of the church should be characterized as being a band of brothers who love God, love each other, and love the people. Love God, love each other, and love the people. One of the greatest harms that's happened in the church is that the leaders of the church have been reduced to identifying themselves and being identified as a board of elders, a deacon board, an elder board. Listen, that adjective doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. It is not a necessary adjective. If it were necessary, God would have inserted it there. The boardroom mentality is not a biblical mentality. It is responsible for many churches getting cooked in a squat and not living up to their God-sized, spirit-filled, spirit-led potential at this time in our nation's history. You think I'm upset about it? I'm not nearly as upset about it as Almighty God is. We have turned the house of God where the Spirit of God is supposed to be moving characteristically at this time in our nation's history to nothing more than a series of board meetings. And God is bored with our board meetings. And we need to hear Him. I'm not doing God justice. The house of God needs to be cleaned out of a cold, dead, stale, impotent brand of Christianity that is interested in self-protection. How much money are we making? How many people are coming? Why are we not familiar with Jesus' teaching unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood? You can't have any part of me. And a large number of disciples left him that day. Sometimes it's addition by subtraction. We read the story of Gideon. Oh, look at that. God doesn't need all those people. And we make no modern correlation to it today. God doesn't need a boardroom of businessmen to lead his church. The leaders of the church are characterized as elders, meaning spiritually mature and seasoned. It's not a reference to the age. It's a reference to the spiritual maturity 
overseers. You can't oversee what you don't see. They're engaged in what's happening. Shepherds. Farming analogy. What does a shepherd do? The primary responsibility of a shepherd and an elder and an overseer is to feed and care for and protect the flock. That's what a church leader should be about. And I hope that we are all praying for a mighty move of God in this church, mighty movements of the Spirit of God in this church and around this nation. You think I'm done talking about revival and spiritual awakening in this nation because it's not an election year? It's not a national election year? God help us if all we do is get hungry for a movement of God when it's a national election and we have two candidates that are a reflection of the people and the culture the elders and they wanted to know, hey, could we be part of this fellowship here? Well, why are you seeking to be part of this fellowship? Well, I came from a church discipline issue from another large church in the area, but I want to come to your church. So we said, go back to the church you had church discipline under, make things right there, and then you can come back. And so they did. And it looked like they were really following the Lord and tracking with the Lord for a while. And then they took a group of people to a mission trip. And some people made the mistake of thinking that that person was the leader of this church representing the people on that mission trip, but they weren't. And that person came back from that mission trip and sent me an email and said, hey, look at all the great things that we could do in this location, this mission field. But something wasn't right with this person. And so one of our staff members was on a, a trip with his wife 10 hours away. That's how the Holy Spirit can work. 10 hours away. They get to this location and this person shows up with this woman. And they look at each other. And this person with the woman quickly run off. The chances of them being in that same location at the same time could only have been divinely orchestrated. And so we followed up. Hey, how were you down there 10 hours away? Was, were you in a hotel room together? No, no hotel room at all. Turns out they were in a hotel room together. We just got lied to big time. And so when we pressed a little bit further, we began to find out that not only was there sexual immorality, but also the issue of false teaching. That he was teaching her that sex between the two of them was okay because they had a special relationship violating, by the way, the clear teaching of the word of God, the black and white, that any kind of sexual activity outside the confines of a marriage between a man and a woman, any kind of sexual activity outside a marriage is sexually immoral. And so we approached the woman and we approached the man. At least we tried to approach the man. He wouldn't talk to us anymore. But that's how we found out that there was false teaching going on. And so we told the person, you need to repent of the false teaching or you can't be part of this fellowship anymore. And so they left and now they're out there doing what people who are not filled with and led by the Holy Spirit do so well, out there gossiping about the other church and this church for no other reason than we followed what the Bible says. Who cares? Humanly speaking, I really don't care. The only thing I care about is doing what the word of God says and modeling it. And you should too. And lest we forget, you say, hey, Pastor Mike, what's going on with that? You know, uh, that seems a little bit invasive. Isn't this an example of what verses 29 and 30 say? I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. The elders, the overseers, the shepherds are to care for the doctrinal integrity of the flock, to be concerned with false teaching and to deal with it. The instance that it arises, if you don't deal with false teaching, the false teaching will deal with you. Somebody wants to violate the clear black and white teaching of Scripture, it's up to the leaders of the church to address it, to address it directly and not to apologize, not to try to be politically correct. It's not a kumbaya club that's everybody get along. Sometimes you can't get along with people. You can't get along with a false teacher. You cannot get along with somebody who's doctrinally askew and who perverts the Word of God, that their lifestyle is perverted, and all along they think it's a license for sin. It's ridiculous. Ridiculous. Verse 31, as we conclude, 
Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Folks, this is a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit, having spirit-filled consequences for his ministry. The people are weeping. They have bonded. There's a spiritual bond between them, and you need to be careful of this. If you've missed anything and everything else I've said, whether you're an elder or a shepherd or an overseer, a bishop, a pastor, or whether you're a homeschooling mother or a father, in the business world, this applies to you, and it applies to me. What happens is initially God calls you, he saves you, and he calls you, and you're passionate for God. And that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. You're on fire for God. But as time passes, you get passionate for ministry, and the ministry becomes a mistress, and you begin to become enamored with the ministry, and you're not as passionate for God anymore. You're passionate for your ministry, and it's my ministry. This is what I do. And you can tell this because people get upset when you try to provide input about their ministry. No, it's not their ministry. It's God's ministry. So somebody is passionate for God. With the passage of time, they become passionate for the ministry, more passionate than they were for God. And then with the passage of time, like it's happened in many lives, especially through what's happened through social media, even without social media, it was happening. Instead of being passionate for ministry, we now become passionate for popularity. And we no longer are speaking the truth in love because protection has replaced direction. And we begin to ask God to protect us and we're concerned about the opinions of people. And so we don't speak the truth in love anymore. We don't even know how to do that. We're not even concerned or consumed with that anymore. And so in the far distance in the rear view mirror was that once burning passion for God. And the only way to get back there is to repent in here and to ask God, Help me return to my first love. Your first love is not the ministry, mistress. Your identity is not wrapped up in your ministry. It's not wrapped up in your 401k. It's not wrapped up in how much money you have, what kind of car you drive, what kind of a house you have. It's not wrapped up in any of that stuff. Your identity is found in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross who died in your place for the forgiveness of your sins. That settles it. The only way to have a passion for God renewed and to replace that Concern for popularity that people would not speak ill of you. The only way to give up that ministry mistress for that passion for God is to ask God, God, help me. Rescue me, save me, deliver me. Help me to return to my first love. What about you? Have you replaced a preoccupation with protection at the expense of God's direction? The beautiful thing is that today, right now, at this moment, wherever you are, this can be the moment where God reignites your flame. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. You can also invite Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.